first episode of our Construction Law Back to Basics NEC Contract podcast. Um, this is a series of podcasts by Stephen Bolton's um, Construction and Engineering team um, designed to provide listeners with an overview of the construction industry standard form contract, which is NEC Contract. I'm Johnny Farrell, an associate in Stephen Bolton's team. I'm joined today by Tom O'Dell, a trainee in the team. And this is the first episode of our second series of Back to Basics. In the last series, series um, we focused on JCT contracts, but in this series, we'll be focusing on the standard form NEC contracts, and we'll be looking at how to operate them throughout a project. In today's podcast, um, we'll look at the very basics of an, a, an NEC contract, including um, the background and style of NEC contracts, plus the makeup of the contract documents themselves. So, Tom, um, could you tell us a little more on the background on NEC contracts? Thanks, Johnny. Yeah, sure. The Institution of Civil Engineers produced the NEC Engineering and Construction Contracts back in 1993. This was followed by a new suite of contracts in 2005, which was then revised and republished in 2013, which are known collectively as the NEC 3. Then, in 2017, a new suite of contracts was published to ultimately replace the NEC 3. These are known as the NEC 4. The NEC contracts are written in a different style of language and using different terminology to most other standard form construction contracts. When the first NEC contract was produced, its authors wanted it to be different to other traditional forms of contracts, such as the ever popular JCT forms, shifting the focus from the obligations and liabilities of the parties onto good management and communication. This is intended to promote collaboration between the parties throughout the project and avoid adversarial relationships from developing. Yeah, that's correct. So the contracts are designed to be flexible um, so that they can be used for all types of projects, regardless of size or discipline. Um, and they, they contain a number of option clauses which can be used um, depending on the particular circumstances. Um, NEC contracts are designed to be capable for use in both um, the UK and abroad and for all types of procurement, which is useful. And while they're not as popular as JC's contracts, JCT um, contracts generally, they are used quite commonly in the public sector through um, NEC 3 and NEC 4 and um, focus on good project management and emphasize the need for good communication, cooperation and collaboration between the parties. And the intention of this is that it will lead to um, a reduction in the risks and cost overruns that, as we all know, are really common in the construction industry. So NEC contracts are quite different in style and substance from the more popular JCT contracts. And um, for example, um, NEC contracts are written in the present tense in what is supposed to be a clear style and easy for um, non-lawyers to understand. So um, conventional legal terms are not used and the clauses themselves are fairly brief. Um, but due to this, um, there are also relatively few court cases looking at how to interpret the NEC clauses. This means that unlike JCT contracts, which have received a lot of scrutiny and comment by the courts over the years, many of the NEC clauses are still potentially open to interpretation. I would say that another general point to note is that much like the JCT suite, the NEC 3 and NEC 4 are families of contracts, which can be used individually, but also designed to be used together. The NEC suite includes professional services contracts, subcontracts, supply contracts, and short form versions of all of the above, as well as more specific forms, such as a framework contract, an alliance contract, a design and build and operate contract. 
So Johnny, which documents form part of the contract? Yeah, so as with other standard forms of um, construction contracts, the NEC form anticipate that certain documents will be annexed to the NEC term in order to make the full contract. It's been our experience that it's surprisingly common for parties to not check that the right documents are attached and clearly identified. That is definitely something um, to be alive to um, when using these contracts. So, for example, um, the most common form of NEC for ECC typically, typically compromises the following document. Um, this is dependent on the chosen options, but it will firstly have the form of agreement, the contract data, the conditions of contract, um, which include the core clauses, main option clauses, secondary option clauses. There'll also be a schedule of cost components. Um, there'll also be a scope, which um, is known in the JCT as the employer requirement and in the NEC 3 form it's known as the work information and um, there'll also be site information, a price activity schedule or bill of quantities and then finally um, the additional conditions or clauses which are known as Z clauses. So with standard NEC terms, the bespoke terms and then the commercial terms of the contract data there is quite a lot of information there and there's quite a big potential for discrepancies between these clauses. So for example, the contract data could state that the contractor has no limit on liability, but the Z clauses state the contractor's liability is in fact limited. It's definitely worth noting that NEC4 does not contain a hierarchy of documents clause. So in the event of any discrepancy between any of the documents, there is a potential argument about which provision might apply. Therefore, it's always worth drafting something to cover this, either within the form of agreement or as a Z clause. Yeah, so as with many other construction co contracts, um, pre-tender correspondent is often attached um, to the contract. Um, and this can make it quite unclear whether this is intended just to provide background information or it, whether it's intended to have some form of legal effect. But the actual effect is usually to create ambiguity and inconsistency um, within the contract itself. So it's best practice to extract the relevant point of agreement from the pretender correspondent and state them clearly in the relevant contract document or as amendments to the contract terms. It's worth a quick mention of how NEC4 has broadly changed from the previous iteration. The NEC describes NEC4 as building on NEC3 in a way which is an evolution, not a revolution. Most of the changes found in NEC4 seem to have been made to reflect good practice or reduce the need for Z clauses, i.e. the bespoke amendment. The NEC4 suite introduced two new forms of contract, a design, build and operate contract, and also a professional service subcontract. The NEC4 suite also contains the dispute resolution service contract, which replaces the previous adjudicators contract from NEC3. Shortly after launch, the NEC4 also introduced a new alliance contract, which allows the client and multiple contractors, here referred to as partners, to all enter into one contract to work together to deliver the project and share the risks and rewards between them. That's correct. And to briefly look at the ECC in particular, changes were made to clauses for um, which is value engineering, which is now expressly included in the contract also to payment, um, so including a final account style process, which was previously lacking, and also on liabilities. Um, the contractor's liabilities are now set out in detail, whereas in NEC3, 
had um, made contractors risks generally or risks not carried by the employer. Um, what I've just said is not an exhaustive list, but most of the changes are reasonably minor in scope and um, we will discuss them um, in NAC4 later on in the episode series. So now I think it would be good to briefly go through the category of clauses in NET contract. So Tom, what are these categories? Well, you've got five main categories, namely the core clauses, which are the fundamental conditions intended to apply to all contracts. You've got main option clauses. One of these must be selected depending on what is most appropriate to the specific project. Uh, you have dispute resolution options, one of which must be selected to apply to any dispute under or in connection with the contract. Then you have secondary option clauses. These are optional clauses which the client can choose to incorporate into the contract or, or not, as the case may be, in order to tailor the contract to the particular needs of the client or the project. And finally, you have Z clauses. These are not drafted by NEC, but are intended to allow clients to include separately, separately drafted conditions to add to the NEC term contract. These are effectively a schedule of amendments to the NEC condition. Yeah, and the flexibility of the NEC contract with its um, mix and match module structure means that the client or contractor can structure a contract to suit the needs of their business and their project. And let's briefly take a look at these categories of clause in more detail. In this podcast, we'll look at um, the NEC4 ECC contract. But while the specific clauses vary, the same concept applies across all NEC contracts. So starting with the core clauses, these deal with the fundamental requirements that you'd expect to see in all construction contracts. They're set out in nine sections as follows. General the contractor's main responsibilities, time, quality management, payment, compensation events, title, liabilities and insurance, and finally, termination. Just to note that the numbering system can be a bit confusing to someone who's never used these contracts before, as the clauses start with the first number of each section and are then numbered from there. So the first clause in section one is numbered clause 11. We don't propose to go through these sections in detail today, but we'll cover some of the key areas a bit later in the series. Yeah, so the next category of clause is the main option clauses. Here, the client is required to choose one of the main option clauses depending on which particular contract strategy and pricing and payment mechanism is to be followed. Um, so these are options A to F. Um, and just as an example, A is a price contract with activity schedules, where option B is a priced contract with bill of quantities, then option C and D are target contracts with activity schedules or bills of quantities, option E is a cost reimbursable contract, and finally option F is a management contract. And broadly, under options A and B, the contractor bears more of the risk of being able to carry out the work at the agreed prices, under options C and D, the client and contractor share most of the financial risk in agreed proportions. And under, under options E and F, um, the client bears most of the financial risk. Each main option um, contains clauses that are supplemental to the core clauses for the main option. The next category is the dispute resolution options. These give the parties a choice of the process to resolve any disputes, depending on whether the Construction Act applies to the contract. NEC4 also now provides an option to refer to a dispute avoidance board, 
which can give non-binding recommendations to the parties. But this is not suitable where the Construction Act applies, as it could be used to limit the right to adjudicate at any time. Under all options, disputes are finally resolved by litigation or arbitration, depending on what is specified in part one of the contract data. We will talk more about dispute and termination later in the series. Yeah, and there are also um, numerous secondary option clauses that are available um, to the parties to select to incorporate into the contract. Um, we could spread, probably spend a whole day going through these in detail, but just to point out um, some of the main options to be aware of. So there's X5, which allows for sectional completion. There's X7, which allows for agreement of a set delay damages, more commonly referred to as liquidated damages in JCT. Um, there's X14, which allows for advanced payment to the contractor. X15 um, deals with contractor design, potential standard of skill and care. 16 allows for retention and 18 allows the contractor to insert a limit of liability. There are various other options that deal with requirements such as parent company guarantees, performance bonds, information modeling, KPIs and early contractor involvement. It's definitely worth becoming familiar with these um, secondary options, not just for where um, these may be imposed by a client, but also where you may want to request them for your own purposes. The final type of clause is the Z clause. Z clauses are additional clauses that act rather like a schedule of amendments to the NEC contract. The intention of the NEC authors is that Z clauses ought to be kept to a minimum. However, particularly in relation to NEC 3, there are numerous provisions which would ordinarily be found in a construction contract which, unless catered for in the Z clauses, would be omitted from a standard NEC contract. Under NEC 3, Z clauses were commonly used to incorporate market standard provisions relating to issues such as professional indemnity insurance, confidentiality, data protection, assignment, prevention of corruption, and the requirement to comply with statutory requirements. NEC 4 picked up on this and incorporated num a number of these into the contract to remove the need to add them in as Z clauses. The intention is that Z clauses for NEC 4 can therefore focus on more unusual or project-specific terms required by the parties. However, the use of Z clauses with NEC 4 does remain common, in the same way that it is common to find a schedule of amendments attached to a JCT contract. Z clauses are commonly used to deal with issues which are either not dealt with in the NEC contract or which the parties often wish to modify from the standard form. Some examples, additional fourth majeure events or other compensation events to protect the contractor for the consequences of events just outside of control license for intellectual property rights and indemnity for breaches, and involvement of purchasers, tenants or funders, and a requirement for collateral warranties, which are not included in the NEC forms. They instead rely on the grant of third party rights. We, like most solicitors, um, use a set of Z clauses which are commonly useful on the majority of construction projects and which then can be tailored to suit the specific circumstances. The NEC contracts are quite different in style and substance to JCT contracts. And for this reason, it is important that parties enter into an NEC contract understand the difference between these forms and other standard forms such as JCT. And on that point, that concludes this episode. Thank you for turning in today and listening to this podcast, which is the first in the current Back to Basics NEC contract series by the construction and engineering team here at Stevens and Bolton. The next episode will be hosted by, uh, by our colleagues, Gwilym Evans and Lauren Melnick, on managing the contract. 
If you have any questions on today's podcast or would like any further information on what we've discussed today or during the rest of our NEC Contracts podcast series, please don't hesitate to get in touch with myself, Tom, or your usual Stephen DeBolton contact. That just leaves me to say thank you for listening and to wish you all a very good day. Goodbye.